Welcome to the sequel of the ambassadorial series, Deans of US-Russia Diplomacy. I'm Hannah Notte. No decade was more decisive for shaping post-Cold War US-Russia relations than the fateful 1990s. Who can claim to have a more unique and intimate perspective of the forces that shaped this relationship than United States ambassadors to Russia? Jack Matlock, Thomas Pickering and James Collins served as US ambassadors to Moscow. From the disintegration of the Soviet Union in 1991 to President Putin's ascent to power a decade later, they were eyewitnesses to Russia's tremendous transformation after the fall of the Iron Curtain. They were also actors in that history. They met and negotiated with the highest Russian officials, traveled throughout the country, interacted with Russian citizens. In this sequel to the ambassadorial series, we will learn from three deans of US-Russia diplomacy. They will share their personal experiences in navigating the challenges in the US-Russia relationship during the 1990s, Russian domestic upheavals and regional and international developments that would come to trouble the relationship. And we will take a step back from those events to reflect on missed opportunities, ways forward and recipes for successful US-Russia diplomacy. So Yeltsin was in a bit of a corner in all of this. Plus, I think he himself felt it was an absolute disaster to, to use a military option against Serbia. Now, were we prepared for this? Were the Americans, uh, I think, sensitive enough to what this was going to mean? No, they weren't. Um, I'm not sure we at the embassy even understood how deeply the reaction was going to go or how effective the people who were Yeltsin's critics were going to be in using what we did in Serbia against him and against the, if you will, the Westerners. But they were, and they and it put them on the defensive and it made it very difficult for the Yeltsin team for quite some time. Ambassador James Collins served as U.S. Ambassador to Moscow from 1997 until 2001. He was posted as Ambassador after decades of studying and teaching Russian history, of living and serving as a U.S. diplomat in the USSR and then the Russian Federation. He was Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy six years before he became the American Ambassador to Moscow. Two watershed events in 1998, the Kosovo War and the devaluation of the Russian ruble, fundamentally changed the way Russian citizens and political elites perceived America. And it was during Ambassador Collins' tenure that another event profoundly transformed US-Russia relations. Vladimir Putin's arrival to the Kremlin as the president of the Russian Federation. Ambassador Collins, thank you so much for talking with us today in the sequel to the ambassadorial series interviews. It's a real honor for me to speak with you. You had a long and distinguished career serving in the US government, including as deputy chief of mission and charge d'affaires at the US embassy in Moscow. And then of course, later as US ambassador to Russia. So you were really engaged at the heart of American diplomacy vis-a-vis -vis Russia during that fateful decade 
from the end of the Cold War leading up uh, to uh, President Putin's ascent to power. So welcome today. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Anna, and I look forward to talking with you. Um, it's a, it was an exciting and challenging decade, and there's a lot to talk about. Great. So let's get started, Ambassador. And I would like to start our conversation in the year of 1990. You were then ready to go out to Moscow as Deputy Chief of Mission. This is after the Berlin Wall had come down. The Warsaw Pact was coming apart. Germany was on the road to reunification. Nowadays, it seems to me that when we talk about these fateful events at the time, the end of the Cold War and associated developments, the end of communism as a system of government in the USSR, and then the collapse of the union itself, these events are often sort of mixed up um, or even used interchangeably. And I want to ask you, what in your view gave rise to this intellectual laziness, if you wish? Does it matter? And which misreadings of, of history of these fateful events have been most consequential to the trajectory of the US-Russia relationship? Well, I think I'd like to start with something my wife has observed any number of times, and it's in the book she wrote about our four decades of seeing Russia. And that is that when you're part of history and you're in a historic event, you don't know how it's going to come out. In the coup in 1991, as we were sitting at the embassy, we didn't know that it was going to fail until it did fail. And so hindsight is always 2020, but I can assure you that in time sight is far less certain and it's very much like someone who's near and farsighted at the same time. And so I would say the first thing about the collapse of the Soviet Union as a phenomenon or as a historic event is that not only didn't we see it coming, the Russians didn't see it coming either. The Russians understood that they had been going through half a decade of profound change in the way the communist system was working. Gorbachev's reforms had changed a tremendous amount in the way daily life was taking place and how it was evolving. But if they thought anything was coming as we approached uh, the sort of changes that came in 91, it was, well, fine, maybe we'll have a change of leadership or this will uh, result in a, a restructuring of the way the uh, Politburo works and so forth. Nobody thought, frankly, that the Soviet Union was coming to an end or breaking up or disappearing as a unifying element of all of Eurasia. It simply was not thought about. So I'm not too concerned when people ask me, well, why didn't you see it coming? We didn't see it coming because frankly, nobody saw it coming. And the reason they didn't is, you know, yes, all of the Warsaw Pact broke up, but Poland didn't. Germany reunified. So there was no real seeming threat uh, right there to the breakup of the union. Now, there were some signs that were important. Uh, the nationalist movements in the Baltics, for instance, were challenging Soviet control over those previously independent states. You had problems in the Caucasus 
that were challenging Moscow's central control over the region. And you had uh, you know, plenty of nationalist sentiment in countries like Ukraine. But frankly, nobody at the time the coup took place in August 1991 thought it was the end of the Soviet Union. It simply didn't mean that. So did we miss a lot? I'm not sure we did. Uh, I think we understood what the forces at work were. We had heard rumors of coups, but we heard those all the time. And so, you know, the judgment I think was, yes, you know, this is a difficult time. There are changes coming. Gorbachev was engaged in the next big challenge to the system of reorganizing the way the union was structured in terms of its control from the center versus greater local autonomy. But nobody thought this was going to produce uh, the end of the empire completely. Thank you for that. Um, if we stay with the early 1990s for a moment, Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait in August 1990 provided a first real test to the US and then still Soviet uh, relationship under Gorbachev, especially if we consider that Iraq under, Gorb under Saddam uh, had been a long-standing ally Uh, of the Soviet Union. And so US policy at that time, after the invasion of Kuwait, was driven by the assumption that Saddam wasn't just going to leave Kuwait unless he was confronted with overwhelming force and a credible threat of war. And hence, American diplomacy consisted in an attempt to isolate Saddam, to build a coalition against him, to pursue a military buildup. So I'd like to ask you, what was Moscow's position on this American approach as it was taking shape? What were the kinds of debates that you were having with Russian counterparts on this issue? And why do you think Gorbachev eventually decided to support the United States, to support the legal basis at the UN Security Council uh, for what then became the first Gulf War? I mean, was it hard? to convince the Russians to go along with the United States? Did specific individuals matter? Well, first, let me say that, uh, regrettably for this discussion, I was in transition at this time. So I was not uh, traveling with the Secretary of State, with Secretary Baker, as I had for the previous two years. I was off getting educated about how to be a DCM. And so I was more an observer than I was a participant in all of this. But a few things struck me as, as obviously more than an interested observer, I would say. Um, first, um, the relationship between Moscow and Washington had gone a long way over the previous three, four years. And I remember uh, one major event uh, took place in 1989 at the 200th anniversary of the French Revolution when Gorbachev and Bush met uh, in, uh, in Paris. And it was the first time in which the Soviet government formally asked for international monetary loans. In other words, the, the Soviet government had in a sense implicitly joined the global economic system uh, to the extent of being willing to take credit, uh, build credits. That was quite a significant event. Yeah, I remember people talking a lot about it among the, the uh, Western allies. 
because it was unexpected and it was a major shift in where things were going. Um, I think the what happened in the after the invasion is what I remember was Secretary Baker was uh, in Eurasia. He had been visiting, I think he visited Mongolia and he was coming back into Russia, uh, the Soviet Union. And at that time, uh, he met with Gorbachev after the invasion and so forth. And they agreed early on, I mean, almost at the time of, you know, after the invasion on the approach to the UN a joint uh, agreement that what Saddam had done was not, uh, was contrary to international law. And secondly, to go to the UN to try to get it uh, resolved in some way. Now, I think that is where the Soviet Union remained. Um, they did not in any way, shape or form want to see war break out because they knew, first of all, Iraq was going to lose. And secondly, they knew that if Iraq lost, it was going to endanger the relations they had with Iraq, which was one of their key allies in the Arab world. So preventing war, but trying to get Saddam to see reason became their, I would say, policy. And they worked hard on that. They worked up to the very end to the, to the deadline for the outbreak of hostilities. And uh, in the end, they did not succeed. I want to move slightly into the mid-1990s. Ambassador, you were senior coordinator and ambassador at large and special advisor to the Secretary of State for the new independent states when the issue of NATO expansion became really acute in the mid-1990s. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that on the one hand, the US administration was keen to develop these states' capacity to play their own role in the international system effectively and getting them engaged in the partnership for peace uh, and establishing working relationships between them and NATO was really part and parcel of that effort. On the other hand, however, you were also keenly aware of Russian opposition to any NATO expansion. So I'd like to start by asking you how you were hoping to square that circle between those uh, two conflicting dimensions. And why do you believe instruments like the Partnership for Peace or the NATO-Russia Founding Act ultimately proved uh, to be insufficient instruments for diffusing tensions with Russia over the issue of NATO expansion? Well, I think... Um one has to look at the 90s and this issue from two perspectives. First, it was an evolutionary uh, set of conditions that changed as we went through that decade. Uh, we were not in the same place at the beginning of the decade vis-a-vis -vis Russian attitudes and our policy as we were uh, at the end. But secondly, I think there was a more profound problem uh, at the root of all of the challenges that uh, I would say were not really successfully met. And that was that the United States and Russia had a very different idea about what Europe and Euro-Atlantic, the Euro-Atlantic world was going to look at, look like 
after the end of the Cold War. And uh, that essentially was, uh, I would describe as follows. The American perspective usually, I would say, put most simply, uh, saw it as the defeat of communism and the Soviet idea and the model that it represented as the outcome of the Cold War. And therefore, uh, thinking in terms as Americans often do about wars that we've won, the idea was that we would then shape the future uh, according to what we thought the agreed perceptions were among those who prevailed. And remember in many ways, even Yeltsin and the Russian government, uh, not very long after the collapse of the Soviet Union, more or less agreed that the Soviet Union uh, was at an end and uh, that it had all uh, become something different in the context of what Eurasia was to be. On the other hand, the Russian perception had one very profound difference. And that was they hadn't lost anything. They too had won. They had ended the communist system. They had got rid of the, uh, the, the communist party domination. They had also ended the empire uh, in a peaceful way. They had also committed to the complete uh, revolutionary transformation of their economy uh, to join the global economic system. What they didn't agree to was that they had lost. That Russia was still, from their point of view, the other great power in the Euro-Atlantic world a power that was going to shape the future of a new system for the entire community as in something like an equal to the United States, as it had been before. They, after all, remained the nuclear superpower. They had not lost that position. And so we had two very different views about what had happened uh, with the end of the Soviet Union, in a way. And more to the point, a very different view about how and who would develop and I would say constitute the new post-Cold War structure of the Euro-Atlantic world. Now the Americans in the end over time uh, opted for doing all of this restructuring in the context of the system of the NATO security system. And uh, the Russians, for their part, from the very outset, rejected that idea and were always looking for a way in which Russia and the US and maybe some other great powers uh, in Europe would be the arbiters and developers of the new system. So they opted to push things like the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation, which was a full uh, where everyone was a member. There were no difference in memberships. Um, now, the United States explored other options which were more attractive to the Russians in the beginning and first half of the, uh, the 90s. The Partnership for Peace, remember, was joined by Russia itself. They became a member of the partnership. They saw it 
as NATO was continuing to exist, but it was the NATO that had existed before the end of the Cold War. And then these other nations were having a relationship with that alliance, but they weren't members. They were all equal. So Poland and Russia were in the same place vis-a-vis NATO. All of these others were uh, members of this so-called partnership. And they were all, in a sense, working to develop a new set of arrangements uh, with NATO uh, and NATO with them. That worked for quite quite well for a couple of three years. And I have to say, when I was ambassador at large and was going out to these other new states, it was a terrific thing to have as a tool in my kit bag to say, we are working with you to help you join this partnership, to be an effective ally or partner of NATO, to be uh, a partner in all that uh, the new security system will help to make uh, possible in the way of security and independence for all of these states in Europe. So that, that was phase one. Phase two, I would say, came in sort of in the middle of the 90s Uh, And it was preceded by a couple of things. First of all, the war in Bosnia uh, was uh, something that evolved in a way from the standpoint of the US and Russia in a very interesting way. Uh, There was something called the contact group. It was kind of what the Russians, I think, always had in mind as the Security Council of Europe. It was the main powers. They met, uh, they more or less talked about how to approach uh, bringing the Bosnia thing under control and so forth. Um, And in the end, it produced also agreement that the Russians would provide peacekeeping forces under US command in the post-conflict Bosnian situation. It was, you know, in other words, Russia was willing to be a part of a security operation run by uh, under the NATO flag, but by the Americans and take part in that. Now, at the same time, the whole movement and the pressures in the US for bringing NATO, bringing new members into NATO was building. The Russians were adamantly opposed to this. There was no question they didn't want it to happen. On the other hand, they also knew there was nothing they could do to stop it. And so you've asked about the uh, founding act that was negotiated in the middle of the the 90s. Well, the founding act was in essence an effort to negotiate with the Russians uh, the terms under which they would accept the accession to NATO and new membership of Poland, Czechoslovakia, and Hungary in return for assurances about what NATO would and would not do east of the old alliance boundaries, that is east of Germany. And the terms of that talked about limits on the uh, kind of deployment of any NATO forces that could occur in those new member states on uh, you know, the, the, the way NATO could uh, behave in them, et cetera, et cetera. In turn, while Russia never was willing to embrace the accession to NATO as something they they wanted. 
they said that they would not oppose it. Now, this was more or less something they couldn't stop anyway, so fine. But the NATO Founding Act, in theory, uh, created a new condition. And I know it was certainly the understanding of the Russians that, okay, that's we, we did this. That's where it is now. That's it. You know, the, the new arrangement now exists. And uh, that was, okay, reasonable for a while. The, the idea that uh, Russia would meet with uh, NATO allies uh, in, uh, in the NATO-Russia uh, Council and so forth was founded. Uh, the Russians never liked it because they always said, well, it was always 14 against one or 17 against one. Uh, you know, it was never Russia as an equal member of the discussion. It was NATO versus Russia. Uh, Etc. So it was never wholly successful by any means, but it also, frankly, was always uh, a fragile kind of arrangement, and one that, frankly, the United States side, um, I would say, found it difficult to uh, keep up, because uh, there were pressures building. First of all not to have that be the last word. Now you were going to begin to get the pressure to have the Baltic states join NATO. Uh, and there were pressures to have um, something that was testing the boundaries, let's say, of how the NATO forces uh, in these new three countries would be uh, deployed or not deployed or what role they would have and so forth. So the reality was once the, uh, you had the first new accessions to NATO, I think the, uh, the challenge uh, for the American-Russian relationship simply grew ever stronger as pressures mounted for the NATO model to be the one that was going to be pushed to define the new security structure for Europe uh, and the Russian view that that was not the kind of model that they were prepared to see as the legitimate new structure for the whole Euro-Atlantic world. What they were clearly saying was, uh, even in the middle of the, of the 90s, um, Baltic states maybe, but no further, no further into former Soviet space. And that, uh, frankly, became the hard red line uh, that we, we found uh, was a real one uh, two decades later. Thank you for that, Ambassador. That's incredibly useful. And if I may, I'd like to ask you a slightly more conceptual follow-up question on what you just said. You outlined these very divergent U.S. versus Russian views of how the Euro-Atlantic space should be structured after the end of the Cold War. So essentially, America found itself with a Russian interlocutor in the 1990s, which had formally renounced uh, empire. The direct rule by Moscow of the other republics had ended. Yet on the other hand, Russia effectively did stake out a sort of an entitlement or a claim to a privileged sphere of influence uh, in its neighborhood. So from an American point of view, then where are the lines between empire, hegemony, sphere of influence, and what are the lines, uh, or what sort of an acceptable degree of Russian entitlement, if you wish, 
to have a say over the path of, of its neighbors, whether that's rooted in history, threat perceptions, uh, or something else, versus a degree of undue Russian influence that should really be rejected. How does one judge what is sort of acceptable versus unacceptable? Is it a case by case decision? How were you thinking about those questions in the middle of the 1990s? Well, um, first of all, in, in the 90s, I think up through the 90s, really, even into Putin's early, early years, um, the issues that you're sort of suggesting were not as stark as they become in the uh, the last decade and a half from where we are now, from the mid-2000s mid on. But I think, uh, you know, the... The reality is Russia was the great power in Eurasia. And uh, that meant all of its neighbors had the problem of living with a big power, one that was tremendously bigger than any one of them. Now, I won't, I don't want to get myself into trouble here, but I mean, fundamentally, my guess is that Mexico and Central America and a number of other countries uh, in the Western Hemisphere have thought similarly that it's not easy to live with that big thing in the North. Um, and, you know, we do have something called the Monroe Doctrine. And we've damn near come to nuclear war over uh, the, the then Soviet Union trying to put uh, military forces, including missiles, into a country in this hemisphere. So, you know, the, the issue of great power and neighbors is not unique to the Russian system. And I think uh, the reality was even more complex because in the breakup of the empire, uh, yes, the political boundaries were set, uh, new governments emerged rather quickly and, and uh, began to govern. But the residue of the divorce process uh, between the center in Moscow and the successor to the Soviet government, which was Russia, and all of those neighbors was very complicated and very complex. They had to define boundaries. They had even more trouble in the context of developing national economies and relations of economy that were state to state rather than one big economy under a central authority. All of this was tremendously complex and difficult in the 90s and was not even finished even at the end of them. And so the, the Russian uh, development of its relations with neighbors, it seems to me, has been an evolutionary process. It's taken place over quite a period of time. And it, it began, I think, with uh, probably an assumption, first of all, that uh, if you will remember, the, the initial breakup of the union that was foreseen was in the creation of the Commonwealth of Independent States. Now, you know, exactly what that was supposed to be, it was not clear, but it was essentially to be some kind of a un unified community in terms of its past and kind of its interests, its commonwealth status. 
Uh, at the same time, it was independent states. And Yeltsin, from the very outset, was wedded to the idea that they would be independent. So he negotiated the borders. He negotiated uh, issues that uh, questioned anything about independence. Some issues were left never resolved completely, but they were working to try to get them set. And the, I would say that Yeltsin's position throughout his presidency was that those states were independent, they were sovereign, but Russia, they were also Russia's neighbors and Russia had interests at stake in how they behaved vis-a-vis the rest of the world. And to put, put it quite simply, even Yeltsin, I think, with all of his uh, uh, readiness to support their independence and sovereignty, was never going to see as a, something that was acceptable the appearance of the U.S. 1st Cavalry Division on the Ukraine-Russian border. Because that was a different question. That was an issue of security for the homeland. So I think, uh, you know, the, the premise at the beginning was always that Russia did have a different relationship with these immediate new neighbors, the former republics. Um, the question was, how was it going to be arranged? And what was it? Now, um, in my experience during much of the 90s, the, uh, those new states were very much concerned, most of all, in developing their own statehood their own sovereignty, their own capacity to govern themselves. Uh, they had much more experience dealing with Moscow, frankly, than, than we ever did. They knew how to manipulate them many ways, other things. And many of them defined themselves almost as not Russian, which I never thought was terribly healthy. Uh, you know, they, they needed to be either Ukrainians or Georgians or Uzbeks or whatever in their own right not just not Russians. Um, but I think it was also true that, you know, when I would uh, visit the countries, and I did, uh, it was clear to me that there were limits to what the United States was able to do to ensure the security and sovereignty and independence of those nations, unless they were capable of doing a great deal of that work effectively themselves because the idea that the United States was going to go to war over Kyrgyzstan with Russia was not real. It simply wasn't a fact. So the question was, how could we assist them in developing their sovereignty and independence and independent existence? But I always thought we had to have a very a realistic view about what the US could and could not do, and what we needed to encourage those states to do to develop a working and rational relationship with their big Northern neighbor. And in that, I sometimes was not fully understood in Washington, I think, uh, you know, the, the idea was they're independent, they're sovereign, the Russians have no say in it. In fact, much of the way in which American thinking went about what was happening in that region was that our principal objective was to prevent the restoration of the Russian empire. And that, you know, uh, essentially meant that we were intent not so much on 
developing the countries around Russia and getting them to have a relationship with their northern neighbor that would work, as we were in preventing Russia from having a future in those countries, which I think was unrealistic. Um, and the Russians um, more or less didn't pay a lot of attention to this uh, for a considerable time. In fact, uh, the Russian approach was, you know, they were developing their own relations. They didn't think uh, that they were having a problem with these nations, except possibly Ukraine and the Baltics. And, you know, there was, uh, I would say, not a major concern that the United States was going to replace them or that uh, we were going to have problems. I mean, the, the, the problem children were Ukraine and Georgia increasingly because they kept saying, we want to join those guys in the West, the NATO people. And for the Russians, that was just, I would say, a red line. And it was from the beginning. Um, that, you know, as I said, if you looked at it from the standpoint of security, uh, I'm sure the, the Russian general staff was uh, presenting the unacceptable idea of, you know, American forces ending up on the Russian border in Ukraine or in Georgia. Now, this may have been unrealistic, but it doesn't mean that they weren't capable of thinking the worst case. And, you know, they watched what we were doing in Poland and Czechoslovakia and Czech Republic and Hungary, uh, development of anti-missile defenses, or not in the 90s, but some of this was there. And they were concerned. And so I think that is was a position that existed from the beginning. And our efforts, frankly, to challenge it frontally were always uh, probably uh, meant going to produce an equally sharp rebuke. And, you know, uh, that was, I think, uh, that plays out very, very unfortunately in the last decade and a half. Thank you so much for such a comprehensive answer. That's really useful. Russia maintained or retained a significant nuclear arsenal after the end of the Cold War. So I want to turn the conversation to a strategic arms control for a second. Um, when you were DCM at the embassy in the early 90s, uh, the United States and Russia negotiated the START Treaty, uh, which called for the destruction of immense numbers of nuclear weapons and opened up an unprecedented system of verification and transparency in the systems of strategic arms. So first of all, I want to ask you, it's my understanding that the US embassy in Moscow played a role in support of these negotiations uh, towards the START Treaty. How did that work? What is it that the US embassy in Moscow sort of fed into the negotiations And how did the different pieces come together in the U.S. interagency process in preparation for these negotiations? Well, let me begin with a slightly different question, because I think um, the background to it is extremely important. Um, when the Soviet Union broke up, I would say there was no higher priority in the U.S. approach to that region 
and I stress the region here, not just Moscow, but uh, the whole kit and caboodle of the empire, than ensuring that the nuclear arms that existed around that country were, first of all, protected and under competent control. And secondly, that we had as a strategic goal from the very outset, the withdrawal of all such arms, both tactical and strategic, back into the Russian Federation or their destruction in place. Now, there was no higher priority than that, I believe, in the policy of the United States at the time of the Soviet breakup, because the idea, first of all, that you could have the outbreak of civil war, and nobody took it for granted that was not possible, in a country where nuclear weapons were around was a frightening prospect, and one that no one could contemplate with any equanimity. Now, fortunately, I think you know the people in Moscow had the same view. Uh, really, the others in the rest of the of the country, the leaders also pretty much had the view that we had to find the way to get it through that and get rid of it. So the the first priority that was on the agenda was to ensure that all the tactical nuclear weapons, to the extent we could verify it, had been withdrawn from the non-Russian republics back into the uh, Russian Republic or into Russia uh, after the breakup. And secondly, to negotiate the end of the presence of the strategic nuclear weapons in Kazakhstan, Ukraine, and Belarus. And so strategic arms in, in that sense from at the beginning and in the earliest stage were very much focused on that issue. Now, I have to tell you, uh, you know, it's very nice to, you're very complimentary to uh, DCMs and ambassadors and embassies in this kind of thing. But frankly, when it came to the negotiation of something like the START Treaty, the embassy's role was a limited one. I mean, sure, we did things to support, uh, you know, the, the negotiating teams and all this kind of thing. And we reported on uh, all of the questions and issues that were of relevance to the negotiations as they were ongoing. That was part of our contribution. But did I, as Chargé, or did the ambassador, even when he was there, have a direct input very much or significantly into the negotiating process? Not a lot, frankly. It was limited. Uh, the arms control world had a sort of dynamic of its own. They had a very uh, competent, very uh, impressive group of people who had their counterparts uh, on the Russian side. Those are the people who did the negotiating and got the decisions made. Now, you know, in the interim between sessions and so forth, I yes, I carried the mail to uh, the Russian uh, negotiating side. Uh, their ambassador carried the mail to our negotiating side. Um, and there was back and forth. And there were visits by senior people uh, exploring issues. So particularly uh, as uh, the things moved, uh, people like Strobe Talbot would come and have uh, talks with counterparts about these issues. 
But did the embassy itself play a major role, or did I, even I in Washington, uh, as the assistant secretary equivalent, it was ambassador at large, but it was for that region, have a, a strong voice? Well, I, you know, I knew what was going on. I was, in, I tried to be sure that what I heard made sense to me. Uh, that people weren't going off on what I thought was a tangent uh, that was not realistic vis-a-vis -vis, uh, what the Russians were saying or doing. But, you know, Washington's a very big place, and there are lots of people with voices. Uh, I used to joke that, you know, I had about 85 ambassadors to Russia. So, you know, there were, were plenty of voices. But the embassy's role, I would say, was important as reporter, as, as you know, playing, being a, a competent, capable, uh, both reporter of what we were asked to convey, but also what we thought it important for Washington to understand. We were an important uh, conveyor of messages to the Russian government from uh, the Washington side uh, when that was necessary. And, you know, we had a voice. We were the people on the ground. We did go around. We knew lots of people. And we, our voice was heard in the, uh, in the policy circles, making decisions about the negotiation. But were we, you know, more than one voice? Not really. I mean, we were significant, uh, but not dispositive in almost anything. Thank you. That's very clear. And I want to ask a, a follow-up question on arms control in the early 90s. So we had this momentum with the START Treaty. We had the non-Luga CTR programs. We had negotiation towards the Chemical Weapons Convention at the time. But one area where perhaps more could have been done was on the question of tactical or non-strategic nuclear weapons in Europe. I mean, you had the pledges in the so-called presidential nuclear initiatives from December 1991, but then no negotiation towards a verifiable agreement or treaty. And I'd like to ask you to elaborate on this a little bit. I mean, why were the non-strategic nuclear weapons such a hard lift at the time? Uh, it's a hard question, and I'm not sure I've got a good answer to that, uh, except that for the Russian side, um, remember that the border in Europe, the European border from the Baltic to the Black Sea, isn't the only border. And there was another big country out there that um, at this time had a relationship a good deal different from what it is now with the Russians. Uh, there were a lot of uncertainties about what the future of the relations with China and the, the Asian heartland was going to be. Um, Russia was weak, uh, was uncertain even about whether it could hold itself together, for sure. And so I think tactical nuclear weapons may have had quite a different meaning for Russia's security establishment in terms of their ability to defend the homeland than just a question of whether if we got ours out of Germany, they could get rid of all of theirs. 
I mean, it was just not, I think, the same question. And I think in that sense, uh, the strategic issue has always had a different meaning to, to the Russian side. And understandably, I mean, they are, you know, defending a territory where for huge tracts of it, they don't have any people. You know, they're defending borders that are humongous. And so the question of deterrence, uh, I think uh, in that dimension is an extremely important part of the way they think about this. Uh, Secondly, I think it's just a reality that uh, the Russian side, particularly after the breakup, has a population that doesn't even, you know, it, it doesn't, it's half of Europe. It's not even half of Europe's uh, population, uh, much less ours. So we're dealing here with a country at a huge disadvantage, not, not, in almost every single way you can think of actually being able to resist uh, in the worst case. And so, you know, I, I think tactical nuclear weapons were kind of the ultimate deterrent that you, you didn't just have to go to war with the United States and end everybody was, was I think, the thinking, but you could make it awful hard for people who were trying to cause you pain or take a part of your territory. If you had this uh, kind of weapon at hand. I, I don't, I mean, I don't know that I see well into the Russian mind and as you know, I'm not an arms control expert. I never profess to be. But to me, uh, the, the problem on the tactical nuclear weapons always had to do with the disproportionate role, I think Russia's security establishment saw them playing in their own capacity to defend the homeland. We didn't see it that way. You know, we didn't have a nuclear threat. Tactical weapons were a problem. Europe did, but not the United States. And so, I mean, our mentality about this was, I think, just different from theirs. Now, that said, I think, you know, there are all sorts of technical reasons about why it was difficult to come to any agreements or how I was, uh, uh, why they weren't willing to talk about it. It was a little bit like missile defense was to become. You know, I mean, we said it's not a threat. I mean, they're more or less saying the tactical weapons aren't a threat either. I mean, you know, people see things differently that way. So, I mean, I, I think that's, that's in great part the reason. The Nunn-Luger program fundamentally had a very simple premise. And that is that United States would be more secure if you could get rid of the strategic nuclear weapons that were required to be destroyed or were in those other non-Russian states um, as soon as possible and safely. And that we would also be more secure if we knew that the nuclear arsenal of the, so of the Russian Federation, post-Soviet, was under secure and stable control. And so the idea was the Americans would provide money and funding and to the extent necessary 
would support expertise and exchange and so forth. To achieve that end in the Russian Federation, which was broke. And so that's what was this was all about. And there were basically two or three basic programs in it. One was to destroy and eliminate the uh, nuclear warheads uh, and nuclear weapons as required under the START Treaty. And that was true in Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, uh, Kazakhstan, Ukraine, and Belarus, as well as in the Russian Federation. The second was to try to ensure that any nuclear materials that remained, weapons and so forth, were going to be stored and secured in ways that ensured their security and close control by competent authority. And the third was to try to ensure that the build down of the nuclear industry across the board in all of those countries, but particularly in Russia, did not result in a lot of nuclear expertise and knowledge and personnel and so forth going off to other countries where it was thought, you know, they were trying to develop nuclear weapons, which would have been a big problem. And so, uh, you know, really extraordinary programs were undertaken. I'm not going to get into the details. I would only say that for the 90s, almost for the entire decade, without a lot of problems, save for an often obstruction by the security authorities, the Russian and American counterparts worked cooperatively and effectively to achieve all the ends that that program had set for itself. And it was really quite extraordinary because once you posited for the nuclear scientists in these say cold closed cities, the problem that they had to jointly achieve, they got to work and they did it and they did it extremely competently. Um, we built new nuclear storage sites uh, with them. We helped them decommission nuclear reactors and nuclear weapons and warheads. All of this stuff, basically extremely competent cooperation between experts from both sides and the political dimension was not an issue. Whatever the differences were, they got on with the job because the job had been agreed. I think it was a lesson for what's possible when you get to the point where you can agree on the objective. So it was an extraordinarily, uh, I would say, inspiring program in many ways for both sides. Uh, it was quite something to watch the way the nuclear scientists from both sides would sit down and they exactly understood one another and knew how to approach, knew what the issues were, talked over the options they had and would then recommend the decision about what to do. It was real professional work. It was a bit like the space station which was the same kind of project. Thank you for sharing that success story of cooperation. I do wanna turn our conversation to the issue of Kosovo. Mm -hmm. You already uh, touched upon the Kosovo crisis in the first interview of this series with, with Jill Doherty, uh, the crisis over Kosovo in 1998. And you explained how this became a major setback for Yeltsin who failed to prevent uh, US military intervention in Serbia and how this really led to an unprecedented turn against Americans and Russia. And I would like to dig a little deeper into the issue today, if I may. 
First of all, I'd like to ask you, could you characterize your interactions with Russian counterparts on this issue, both prior to and after the US decision to bomb Serbian targets to stop Milosevic's campaign against the Kosovars? I mean, what were the Russians saying to you? And was the United States prepared for the extent to which this really turned into a domestic issue in Russia, shaped the Russian uh, public mood so strongly? Or did this come as a surprise to the United States? Well, um, we're going back more than 20 years and I'm not sure my immediate memory is all that good about about exactly what I was doing on, on, on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so I'm not sure I can, can give you a good picture of what I was saying to the Russians. Or, but, but clearly, uh, the Russian position is one that I understand. And I would also tell you that there was a good deal of direct communication between the Kremlin and Washington uh, that I wasn't privy to uh, during this time. But I know what it was about. I mean, it was about basically Yeltsin doing his utmost to prevent Clinton from going to uh, the military option. Uh, he absolutely was adamant that he, he wanted the Americans to avoid doing that. Now, I don't know for sure what the dynamics were inside the, the team there in, in, in uh, the Kremlin. But clearly uh, Yeltsin understood that it was going to be a defeat for him if uh, he was not able to prevent his friends, the Americans, from going to war against an emotional brother of uh, the Russian people. And believe me, there was plenty of propaganda about all this, you know, about how, uh, why were the uh, Americans standing up for the Muslims, you know, in, in, in Kosovo? Why were they being anti-Serb, uh, anti et cetera, et cetera? So Yeltsin was in a bit of a corner in all of this. Plus, I think he himself felt it was an absolute disaster to, to use a military option against Serbia. Now, um, were we prepared for this? Were the Americans, uh, I think, sensitive enough to what this was going to mean? No, they weren't. Um, I'm not sure we at the embassy even understood how deeply the reaction was going to go or how effective the people who were Yeltsin's critics were going to be in using what we did in Serbia against him and against the if you will, the Westerners, but they were, and they and it put them on the defensive and it made it very difficult for the Yeltsin team for quite some time. Now, Yeltsin is a shrewd politician and he did manage to extricate himself by essentially, uh, after a couple of weeks of being beat up over the issue, portraying his critics as warmongers trying to get the Russians into a war in the, in the Balkans. And at the same time, offering to be the peacemaker, uh, saying he's willing to send Chernomirdin to see Milosevic, 
try to bring the, the fighting to an end, uh, get a ceasefire, whatever. In other words, get this onto a negotiating track and stop the, the military action. Now, you know, the run-up to all of this, you know, had been troubled. I mean, we, we, uh, we had uh, had a position in which we were basically trying to draw a red line for Milosevic. And Milosevic, just like Saddam before, wasn't paying much attention. Uh, and similarly, the Russians were trying to preserve their relations with an important ally or important partner uh, and knew that he was in for deep, deep trouble if he got himself into a war with the West. Uh, and again, you know, they, they, they failed in the first instance, but in the, in the end, uh, in some sense, Yeltsin pulled, out, pulled himself out of it by uh, in many ways being the catalyst to get the fighting stopped and, and moving on to a negotiated outcome. But um, the, the damage was very serious for the Americans because in a way, um, the Americans had been sold to, to in, in uh, I think the way the Yeltsin group had always presented us is that they were, the Americans were not warmongers, were not, they were trying to keep the peace, they were trying to make peace and, and, and uh, so forth. Um, and this undercut that position that somehow we were, you know, we were just using our military whenever we didn't get our way. And that, that shook a lot of the, uh, of the confidence in the United States, I think. And it, it did go very deep because people did know about Serbia and the idea that these were our kind of orthodox brothers and uh, there'd always been a special relationship with Serbia. Um, you know, it, it uh, went much lower down into the population as an issue than most others had up to that time. Thank you so much for that, Ambassador. Turning from Kosovo to another conflict, you witnessed both the first and second Chechen war. The first, I believe, from Washington, the, the second from Moscow as US ambassador. Could you talk a little bit about the differences, if any, in US assessment and perceptions of the two Russian campaigns in Chechnya and the impact those had on the US-Russia relationship? Well, I guess, first of all, I'd say that both of them had a negative impact. You know, uh, this was portrayed rightly or wrongly as, you know, the big ogre beating up on a little minority um, in the American kind of psyche. Uh, and therefore, the little guy or the underdog, you know, often had probably more support or sympathy than was necessarily warranted. But the issue was essentially whether the Russian Federation's territorial integrity was going to survive. And uh, in the case of the first war, uh, it was coming in the aftermath or as as decisions were emerging and being made that were in fact strengthening the unity of the, the Russian Federation, uh, where the compromises and so forth required with local leaders and others were bearing fruit and uh, creating a more effective central government. 
uh, and where the questions about whether the Russian Federation was going to survive were being put to rest. Uh, much more confidence it would. And here, the Chechens are actually openly challenging that premise. So there was no question about that. Um, Yeltsin, uh, I think, uh, uh, was ex had explored a number of options. I think he'd been told uh, by the security services, by the military, by others that they could take care of this and you know, make sure it didn't happen. None of it worked. Um, and meanwhile, pressures were growing on him about uh, keeping the union together. Uh, about the uh, unacceptability of uh, of uh, what the Chechens were doing in, in, in the area, and so um, you know he, uh, he I guess he asked then uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the Minister of Defense, Grachov, to uh, solve the problem. Because I think Grachov had told him, "Don't don't worry, I can deal with it in a couple of weeks." And of course, you had the outbreak of the first Chechen war, which turned into a disaster. Now, I, I, my main uh, concern about that was that the longer it went on, the harder it became for the American government to uh, keep it to the side and keep going on the other issues which were extremely important to us and not let the Chechen war overwhelm our ability to do things rationally with Moscow. So my sense was we had to get this stopped somehow. Uh, and I, in that sense, I did advocate uh, the outcome that was ultimately successful in getting the ceasefire after a time, which was to use the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe as a mediator uh, bring about a ceasefire, do do provide observers, in essence, stop the war. And that actually did work. I mean, the, the OSCE people managed to get it stopped. Uh, the, the issue, in a sense, was put on hold, if you will, I suppose. Uh, the, the, uh, the military dimension uh, receded as an issue. Uh, but nothing was really solved in terms of uh, I would say, resolving the fundamental issues that were challenging the, uh, the issue of relations between Moscow and uh, Chechnya. Um, but uh, it bought time, and it, I thought it was a success because uh, it did take it off the uh, agenda as a front burner issue and let us continue with pursuing the other issues on our agenda that were terribly important. Um, the second war comes uh, after uh, Putin is prime minister. Uh, and there are all sorts of stories about whether he had a role in bringing about things that precipitated, you know, the response of Russia to terrorist activities in uh, Moscow and, and elsewhere. Um, in any event, uh, yes, I was there. I mean, uh, we were opposed to uh, the rest restarting, if you will, of the all-out Chechen war. I remember being sent in to, uh, after the, the initial invasion by Russia of Chechnya, I was sent in to ask Putin as prime minister uh, whether or not uh, there was uh, going to be a halt 
of the forces at the big river boundary uh, in Chechnya. Um, I didn't really get an answer, although I, he said in a, implicitly yes. Uh, and he basically lied to me. Uh, because the objective, I think, with Putin was to put an end to this, to create conditions in which Moscow's interest in preserving the unity and uh, territorial integrity was going to be preserved. And uh, his solution to it in the end, because he wanted to end the fighting, I mean, he didn't want it to continue, was what I have always called Chechenization. Um, which was, uh, you know, basically turn the governance of that province over more or less to uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the leaders, um, uh, Kadyrov, and basically uh, tell them you can pretty much have a free hand if you do not challenge our authority uh, that you are in the Russian Federation and you basically in a sense, behave vis-a-vis out, uh, -vis outside Chechnya. Now, I think that's more or less what was done. Um, I think it is what has continued ever since. Putin's solution to it was not to have good governance in Chechnya. It was to have Chechnya remain a part of the Russian Federation, do certain things as, as, a, as a constituent part, but not ask much questions about what Mr. Kadyrov and his crowd were doing internally in that province. And they more or less run it as they see fit, so far as I could tell. Now, did we accept that? Well, uh, I guess so. I mean, you know, we, we, it, it ended the fighting. It brought an end to the war in Chechnya. Uh, we uh, could at least uh, no longer, we no longer had to deal with the Russian military uh, turning uh, Grozny into Berlin 1945 and so forth. Uh, but uh, did we leave Chechens better off? I'm not sure we did at all. Uh, I think, you know, it, uh, it uh, kept the issue of Chechnya as a challenge for any sort of leadership, uh, American or Russian, intact, but on hold because we've made a bargain with, uh, uh, we, we accepted a bargain that was uh, that uh, Mr. Kadyrov would be in charge. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, Ambassador. I'd like to turn to a set of questions related to Russia's political and economic transition in the 1990s and the role played by the United States here. Starting with Russia's economic transition, the United States was quite active in supporting economic reforms in all sorts of ways through all sorts of programs. And the Russians were also quite proactive in asking for advice on how to establish a market economy in their country. Now, of course, this changed abruptly with the Russian financial crisis of 1998. I'd like to ask you, could the United States have done more to support Russia's economic transition? Was this about more programs, more money, or actually do a better job at understanding realities on the ground? Or in fact, done a better job at managing Russian expectations? 
I mean, what do you think about this? And what do you conclude from this period really about any foreign government's ability to assist another country in such a fundamental transition? Well, I think there are several levels on which to discuss that question. I mean, one simple level is to say that the Americans and, and also our European allies, because they also played a strong role in the transition, uh, were very successful in taking what had been a, an unworkable command economy under the Soviet communist Bolshevik system and turning it into a market system. Because across the entire region of Eurasia today, we have a market economic system. It may be flawed in many ways. It may be a difficult one. It may be corrupt. It may be excellent. I mean, there are all kinds of things that are not necessarily what Americans would say is the ideal, wrong with it, but it is a market economy. And to have transitioned that in what amounted to about a decade was nothing short of almost miraculous because it wasn't just Russia, it was across the whole region. So on the one hand, I would say there was tremendous success uh, you know, in what was done. And I don't think anybody ought to, ought to denigrate or deny that that's number one. Now, in terms of other questions, um, were there things we could have done? Of course there were. You know, I mean, I, I'm sure there were many things we could have done better, uh, things that we could have understood better. Um, I think one of the most difficult issues for all of the people dealing with the Russian transition was the almost impossibility of understanding how little most Russians, and I don't count the few experts that were dealing with the banking system or whatever, but, but most Russians understood about even fundamental basic concepts of the market economy, like money, or how uh, banks worked, or, or you know what, how, how personal property was uh, regarded. I mean, none of this was, was in the genes. Nobody had ever lived with this in the Russian Federation. So uh, I think the assumption that you could just go in and sort of tell people or explain to people and they'd get it often was misplaced. And you, so you had uh, often a good deal of misunderstanding. I think in that sense, what I would say is we didn't listen enough. We didn't explore enough what we were being told by people. And I think that, that was a challenge. And remember, almost none of the people who ever came in to do the work from AID or the other European equivalents had any experience dealing with a communist government and society that never had experienced a market economy. And remember that nobody in the Soviet Union ever lived under a market economy virtually unless they were 90 years old. So that was one big problem. I, I mean, I do think there was a lot of mis misunderstanding about how much they understood. And in that sense, I think you're correct. You know, more, ex better explanation, better management of expectations and so on is something that could have been done better. 
Um, on the other hand, I think it's also true that uh, the Russian side had totally unrealistic expectations about what could happen. Um, I remember, and maybe I mentioned this in the previous one, one, one minister asking me one day whether, and this was, you know, when I was DCM, whether I could send them a team to tell them how to make a market economy. You know, it was just, what did they have to do? And it was sort of like make a few decisions or a few changes. Well, I mean, no sense of the complexities or the deep challenges they faced. Um, on the money side, I don't think it was a money question, frankly. Uh, I do think it was uh, a mis one mistake that we increasingly got ourselves tied into was in assuming that uh, you know the Polish model or the shock therapy model and so forth was going to produce the same results in Russia that it did in a place like Poland. Because it became pretty clear, increasingly clear, I think, that that was not going to be that easy. Uh, and that uh, Yeltsin had a much bigger political problem on his hands in managing uh, uh, showing his people across 11 time zones that changing from the old system in which the government guaranteed everything, even if you didn't get it, um, to one in which you were responsible in a sense for providing your future through your decisions about how you manage your family's finances. And so I mean, this was a whole revolution in a society's thinking. And managing the transition to that adequately, uh, giving greater weight to the social impact of the economic changes is something I think we didn't do enough of. Um, and I remember too that, you know, to the extent America's had, Americans had tools to affect what was happening in Russia, it tended to be money. Well, money <laughs> didn't answer a lot of the problems. And then we got into the idea that you kind of were gauging whether we successful or not by whether the interest rate was right or not. Well, this was all quite artificial in a way. And it ignored the fact that much of the market, much of the market economy was based on barter. Uh, a lot of people were making arrangements that had nothing to do with normal market systems, et cetera. So we, we I think, could have paid more attention to the social transformative impact of some of the things we were doing and listening more to the Russian side about the problems they were having managing it than we did. But I don't think more money would have done much. I think we, we often gave very effective uh, uh, advice and support. Um, I think there were times we didn't know when to stop. That also was an issue. I think there were times when having explained to them it was time to get out of the way and leave them alone on certain things. Uh, we tended not to want to do that. Aid never wanted to leave. Uh, you know, and, and the, uh, that kind of thing. And the second thing I would say is that it wasn't just the government. Uh, when I went out as ambassador, I visited the banking community in New York to see what, what was their assessment about. And they were happy as clams. 
they were making a lot of money in Russia, uh, servicing Russian government debt and so forth. Uh, they were getting very good interest rates on it. And, uh, you know, they were very upbeat about the whole picture and its future. Um, and I think, uh, you know, you've asked about 1998. I think 1998, uh, and I happened to be here when the collapse took place, and just for a couple of weeks. Um, what I watched was the newspapers turn 180 degrees from Russia is a success story to they are a bunch of no goods who don't, who welch on their debts. Now, I read that as simply meaning that an awful lot of people who had been selling Russian debt and making a lot of money and uh, making a lot of uh, profit out of uh, working on the Russian account had egg all over the faces because it didn't turn out well. And uh, I didn't have a lot of sympathy for it. <laughs> um, you know, if you didn't know getting the high interest rates they were getting that there were gonna be some problems, uh, even I'm not a banker, but I had my suspicions. Um, and I think, you know, uh, there was definitely a very negative impact from the financial implications and the way the media played it after that, that Russia was unreliable or that, the, you know, then even more absurdly that the Americans were responsible for everything. You know, we should have known where, who lost Russia. Well, we never had Russia, of course. But I mean, this whole idea, you know, that somehow... Uh, we were responsible for the way everything turned out all over the place in Eurasia was just nonsense. Um, did we have a function and a role? Yes. Did we have some influence? Yes. But were we able to call the shots? No, of course not. And, um, you know, I won't argue that there weren't people who should have seen something coming or whatever, but if Wall Street didn't, you know, they're the ones who had the money in the game and they didn't see it. So, you know, it's a bit like the collapse of the Soviet Union. You know, I mean, if you don't see it when you're a participant, you know, it's not too likely that uh, everybody was gonna see it who was an observer. And this concludes part one of our conversation with Ambassador James Collins. Please watch part two to hear more from the ambassador on missed opportunities, ways forward, and recipes for successful U.S.-Russia diplomacy. Major support for the Ambassadorial Series was provided by Carnegie Corporation of New York. The Ambassadorial Series is a product of the Monterey Initiative in Russian Studies at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. The Monterey Initiative in Russian Studies, or MIR, promotes a nuanced and clear-eyed understanding of contemporary Russia and U.S.-Russia relations. The executive producer of the ambassadorial series is Anna Vasilyeva. Hanna Note is the associate producer and host. Our series is produced by Jarlath McGuckin. Our audio engineer is Floyd Yarmouth at Rockhouse. The ambassadorial series is dedicated to the memory of the 12th president of Carnegie Corporation of New York, Dr. Vartan Gregorian, a visionary and an ardent supporter of international dialogue and diplomacy. Thank you for listening.